This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, my name is Joe Briley. I'm Director of Paediatric Bioethics at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And I would like to introduce the latest in our Paediatric Bioethics podcast series. This podcast has had a previous release, but I feel it's worthwhile uh, having it back in this series as it deals with a very hot topic. Professor Dave Archard is the guest, and he is an emeritus professor of moral philosophy at Queen's University in Belfast, uh, foremost expert in children's rights in the UK and internationally. And also we're delighted to have him as a member of our Paediatric Bioethics Centre team. The topic is pandemic ethics, but actually, although much has been written and discussed about this, we're going to focus on how that applies to children. And shortly before the COVID pandemic, we had a paper published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Journal, together with colleagues from the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital, expressing our concern that the UK, as other countries, was in no way ready for a global pandemic, which predominantly affected children. Obviously, COVID-19 did not predominantly affect children, but there are some unique aspects to child health as things have evolved over the last couple of decades that mean there really needs to be an increased focus on children and how things would affect them if a pandemic either predominantly affected children or affected children and adults equally who might have a call on the same services. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. I'm very happy we have Professor Dave Archer. Dave. How are you? Good, Joe. Thanks very much. So we're going to talk about the ethics of pandemics, which is incredibly topical. And I guess I'd like to just start off with asking you, what are your thoughts on the traditional pandemic ethical discussions that are had routinely when pandemics are discussed? Okay. So I think uh, pandemics are one instance of emergencies, which can arise for a whole variety of reasons. man-made and simply natural. And in emergencies, you've got to make very difficult decisions in difficult uh, circumstances and often very fast. And what's often thought is that the normal moral framework that we might be able to apply in standard non-emergency conditions just doesn't apply anymore in emergencies. And we're able, for instance, to make decisions that might be seen as harsh or immoral in normal circumstances. So for instance, one One thought that often seems to press here is that we tend in emergencies to think very much in utilitarian terms. That is, just counting numbers and trying to maximize the benefit and minimize the costs. And we tend to think less about the constraints on our action in terms of, let's say, fundamental human rights. I I think that that hits the nail on the head. I mean, I'm lucky enough to do disaster planning and that sort of stuff when you are overwhelmed by casualties. If a bomb's gone off or there's a major incident, but if you have a um, standard of running a hospital and lots of people with serious diseases coming in, it doesn't ever seem to fit very well to abandon our standard moral philosophy, how we look after patients on a day-to-day basis. It's something a bit more complicated, I think. Yes. Okay. So I think the one thing to add in, in emergency circumstances is that very often uh, what we're doing are things that we would far rather not do and that in normal circumstances we wouldn't do. Uh, things where whatever we do, there's some kind of moral cost or, or moral loss. And these are classic ethical dilemmas. 
But the consequences are often that we feel we've got dirty hands by virtue of what we've been compelled to do, and that there's some kind of moral injury to the agent in being in those kind of circumstances. And fortunately, these aren't the sort of mundane, everyday decisions uh, that we normally make. These are just extreme ones in very extreme circumstances. Great. Thank you. I guess it's useful for people maybe to hear our previous experience in these kind of um, areas. And I, I, I think there's this kind of a, a vague difference between setting standards, providing guidance and frameworks, and actually people on the floor making these decisions. And I wonder how much you've been involved before in terms of your, your philosophy work about how we, we set standards, if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And I think, uh, fortunately for, for me, I've never myself personally been involved in, uh, making the kind of extraordinarily difficult decision that I think a lot of people currently are being compelled to make. I mean, I think what I would say is that, uh, it's very easy for, uh, moral philosophers or ethicists, a term I thoroughly dislike, but let's stick with it since it's commonly used. Ethicists will often come up with general statements of principle or standards or criteria or relevant considerations. And that's very familiar in the current context that you can see a guidance document as listing uh, various principles such as respect, autonomy, um, minimizing harm and equity. The problem I think for those who, who understand such guidance and who have to make the decisions is how they move from those very general principles to making a particular concrete judgment in any particular case. And I suppose the most obvious example is one of rationing. Um, or prioritization where you might be requested by the guidance to operate fairly, but it's not clear what fairness as such, mm -hmm. uh, demands of us. And there are various interpretations in the literature of what a fair scheme of prioritization might actually involve. Yeah. I, I think in our own unit, that the desire in our ethics team was more to have people be available to provide support because the people on the, the shop floor are still the people who have to make decisions, however quickly they come to them, however difficult. But at least having some support when you're doing so to make sure you're doing a reasonable um, thing, I think that's something that, I, I, if I put my clinical hat on, is, is very valuable to make mm. sure you can just pause and reflect and say, look, you know, this is reasonable given the facts we have. Saying, you know, you must respect autonomy. I, I think there's, there's kind of probably too much of a divide between those two things. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting point. And if you look, for instance, at the, there's very large literature now on the very idea of ethical expertise and what it means to be able to advise as an expert on, on moral matters. There are, there's some early literature that, very, that makes the kind of nice distinction between, for instance, being a coach, uh, someone who uh, helps somebody to do better uh, what they're already in a rudimentary fashion able to do and someone who simply directs and instructs. So you might think of, the ethically wise person, either as someone uh, coaching uh, the decision maker into making the best possible decision and helping them to see what is relevant, what the moral considerations are, uh, so that they can come for themselves to make the choice and, and telling them this is what you must do because this is the ethically right thing in my view. And I think there are, there are problems with both approaches, but I think many would resist the idea that they should simply do what another person tells them to do because in some sense they're supposed to know better what the right thing is. Yeah, good. That sounds sensible. Um, so on to the next question to start another topic, maybe. Um, what issues you have you seen? I'm going to use the term ethics. Uh, I'm allowed to use ethics without mentioning ethicists, I hope. What issues with ethics have you seen during this pandemic? I 
think uh, clearly uh, there have been some issues that have, as it were, have been specific to the pandemic. I mean, it's, fami- it, it's a familiar claim by people who do moral philosophy to say that there really are no new uh, moral problems or moral issues or moral principles. There are just different versions of them. Um, but clearly in, in emergencies, certain things press making decisions fast. And I would say one of the crucial ethical decisions that's been considered is prioritization. Um, if there is a shortfall of resources and uh, medical practitioners cannot do what they judge to be in the best interest for their patient, simply because they don't have enough resources to treat all the patients who present to them, then what presses is the question of how they make choices, who they give priority to. And that really is an incredibly tough question. And if you look at the literature, if you look at the guidance, you'll find, I would say, you know, up to around 10 different accounts of what uh, counts as fair prioritization in, in circumstances where there's a shortfall of resources. And that ain't much help to people on the ground, um, but it continues to be a real problem. I, I would say one of the other things that I, I, I think is interesting in terms of the scope of the ethical issues in an emergency, and by that I mean that... Uh, traditionally, bioethics um, has thought of those issues that arise in clinical medicine uh, in respect of the decisions a doctor has to make or a nurse has to make in respect, of, let's say, a patient or what a medical researcher has to uh, do in respect of the subject. But the strategy that has to be adopted in the case of this particular pandemic raises issues broader than simply medical decision making. and. Uh, touches on general issues of public health and social policy. So clearly, if you're going to adopt a strategy of social isolation, um, you've got to recognize that that has disproportionate uh, consequences for different groups of people and people who live alone, who are old, who are vulnerable, or who are bringing up a child on their own, they are going to be more adversely affected by social isolation than anybody else. And that seems to me is an ethical issue. It's an issue of uh, what justice requires of us by way of support for such people that goes way beyond simply what happens in the hospital or the clinic between a doctor and patient. So I think that the, the current epidemic has caused us to think much more widely about how you deal with this kind of emergency, which in essence is a medical one. It's about a, a dreadful um, uh, virus, but the ways in which we want to cope with it are not narrowly restricted to the administration of treatments. Great, thank you. Perhaps I wish you to a, a bit more of a social route at the minute. So, um, thinking more about, and we hear very often that it's too soon to compare different countries mm. decisions. But I wonder how your your feelings are about the the philosophy and the bioethics of how the UK has performed during this pandemic compared to. Perhaps other countries closer, European countries, uh, or even the devolved countries. I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland, yeah. Wales, Scotland, there have been slight differences, or even in, in places across the Atlantic. No, I, I mean, I think uh, that we are starting as uh, we are slowly coming through this pandemic, and we are coming through it only slowly. Uh, we are starting to think about the lessons we might draw when it's all over. And I think from my point of view, what's been most, um, most poor about this government's response to the pandemic is that it has justified its strategy simply by repeating the mantra that we are led by science. And what's problematic about that is that there's no such thing as a single scientific account of any matter. Scientists disagree quite radically 
Um, but also science alone is not enough. You do need values and you do need ethics. And any strategy has to be justified by appeal both to scientific evidence and to whether or not it's morally justified, whether it's fair, whether it's proportionate. And that, I think, should be done transparently. So it's not only the case that the government has failed to do ethics or to offer any ethical explanation or justification of what it's doing, but what it has done is actually opaque and obscure. So it's never clear how it's making its decisions. We know, for instance, there is a, a group, the, the Moral and Ethical Advisory Group, which was set up last year, which was advising the government on various ethical issues, but were very unclear about its overall remit. We're unsure about what is already recommended or advised the government. Um, and I think just as uh, there has been criticism of the deliberations of SAGE, the scientific advisory group, for its opaqueness, we should criticize the government for the opaqueness of any ethical advice it's received. And, and that contrasts very markedly with jurisdictions elsewhere. So the French National Ethics Committee and the German Deutsche Ethik Rat have played very prominent roles as national ethics committees in advising their respective governments on policy. And what's rather nice to, to note is that um, the uh, chair of the French National Ethics Committee, Jean-François Delfrezi, is also um, the leading epidemiologist who has been the principal scientific advisor to the French government. And you couldn't get a nicer example of science and ethics than that one. So I think one of the lessons to learn is if in the future we are going to face these very difficult circumstances, um, how can we best advise uh, our own government on the relevant ethical issues? Uh, and how can we draw on the considerable resources there are within the United Kingdom in terms of uh, both academic and non-academic ethics um, to advise governments and, and make sure that what they do is clear, justified, and transparent to the public? Wonderful. Dave, this is proof that you haven't seen the questions before I've asked them because <laughs> I my last two. One was about the UK government being guided by science, but what about the values, which you answered very nicely. Um, I, I guess you started to look at what we should do next time, and I'll, um, I'll take you to a different place then. You've mentioned think, right now. Let's say Dave Archard is the Ministry of State, Minister of State for Bioethics. Yes. Who would like to see happen? Uh, for, well, a second wave, it might be very quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, another pandemic, because I have to say, it's a question of when another pandemic comes, not if, history tells me. And there may be great differences, as we've learned from the pandemic we've pre prepared for versus the one we got. So what, what broad um, steps might you take, given the power to do so, to prepare the UK for, for a tough pandemic in the future, thinking particularly about the bioethics? Well, I think, you know, there have been previous exercises. Uh, we know about that now because we know the Department of Health conducted one in, I think, 2007, uh, planning for a, a flu pandemic. And that, that included not just looking at all the resource implications of what might be needed and the coordination and logistics and how you would bring in the relevant departments, but also drew on various uh, existing documents and the advice of uh, some bioethicists to construct some moral framework. So, I mean, there is previous here, and I think uh, everything is about adequate uh, preparedness. And if I was elevated to such an important position, I think I would hope not to act alone and unchecked and in arbitrary fashion, but to draw on the very considerable resources that are available. So I think something like, um, if you look at SAGE, um, and this is a very large organization, 
I don't see why there shouldn't be something like uh, in in preparation a moral and ethical advisory and maybe legal advisory group of the same kind of um, size, but one that would be empowered uh, to offer authoritative advice to the government and do so by contemplating the kinds of emergencies the government might have to be prepared for. And that, I think also, Joe, what's really interesting is the extent to which we can predict what is coming down the road, because in one sense, in one sense, the, the coronavirus is not entirely unexpected. I mean, people, perhaps not, not everyone who thinks to have been writing about it, um, has written about it, but I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is not as it were rocket science. We've known this as a potential problem for some time. Um, so it does seem to me that, um, there's no excuse now when we come out of this, not to be better prepared for, for the next spike or wave or the new, uh, coronavirus, which is likely round the corner. I, I mean, having been part of the Ebola task force and breaking pretty good at the time. And again, the work around H1N1, I remember well, so it, we would have been better prepared for those infections if they had come to the UK in pandemic form. I guess, to be fair, that the predictions of the disease that this COVID-19 virus has caused were not even close to what we've seen. Yeah, predominantly respiratory disease with ventilation in people with chronic problems versus acute infections in older people, obesity, diabetes with huge clotting issues and very, I mean, as an intensivist, Wow. Quite the strangest ventilatory stuff going on, just putting it very loosely. So no. I guess there needs to be a broad plan for things we don't know yet, I guess, is my, my point. Yeah, and I think there's also, uh, there is the old familiar problem of the Rumsfeld question of the unknown unknowns, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was listening this morning to uh, somebody who was talking about what they're discovering uh, COVID-19 is doing to kidneys. Uh, yeah. And, and this raises, you know, really then no clear sense of why it's doing what it's doing and whether it's being selective in terms of the, the patient's uh, comorbidities or background that it's doing those things. Equally, you would know that we're discovering some pretty terrifying things about compounding existing conditions in, in children. Uh, and it's slightly unclear why that is happening. So. This is an area that's in a sense quite frightening because um, it's not like we're now dealing with a virus whose mode of operation we know everything we need to know about. We, may, we are learning as, as we go along day by day. And that seems to me makes the, the job of those engaged in ethical analysis all the more difficult because, you know, we, we're going to be making decisions where we're not entirely clear what it is we're trying to do and why we're doing it in that fashion. Um, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a tough call. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, one, one small matter is it, it's, it's not a simple enough matter of saying that, you know, we can, we can put people on ventilators and when they come off ventilators, clap because we've saved a life because some of the evidence might be we've done incalculable damage. Um, um, the virus has done incalculable damage while they were on the ventilator and the kind of life uh, that they might enjoy subsequently is much reduced in quality. And that, again, complicates the sort of simple decisions we might want to make. Absolutely. And, and other simple stuff, we, we've not looked after this virus in our population at a time of other major viremia. What happens when other viruses come? How does healthcare manage flu when that comes that looks very similar to this at presentation? I, there are lots of really interesting questions to think about going forward that almost yeah. need to be before we've analysed what's happened this time. I absolutely agree. And I think one thing that is often overlooked, well, it did get to mention, but it's worth 
where worth uh, checking is that um, questions of uh, rationing and distribution of scarce resources is not just about treatment of COVID-19 patients. It's about a whole matter of who we treat. So we know that the priority of COVID-19 has meant that other areas of clinical treatment have been neglected. Um, and we'll have to make decisions about where we put everything on a uh, sort of priority list of what takes uh, priority, what takes prominence in future action. And that again is an incredibly difficult one to do. Uh, you know, we know that, you know, even routine treatment of, of cancer patients has been set back severely by what has happened. Um, I, I, I mean, one matter that we, we haven't mentioned, but is, is worth noting is it's, it's alarming to, to know that a lot of people are not presenting to hospitals, to A&E and to GPs, because they're absolutely terrified of doing so <laughs> because they think they're going to risk infection by doing so. And I think we're not only going to cost, count the cost of those who have died as a result of COVID, but those who did not contract COVID, but nevertheless died when they might have been otherwise treated for, for, for other conditions. And that seems to me a real issue. And we've, we had to put an alert out. We certainly raised that in the media from here. There are many children who were presenting late and some sadly died in terms of parents, as you say, being terrified to bring their child into a hospital because stay at home, don't go into places, which is a sensible message. And also the, the services we have in the UK in terms of phone lines, which are very well, most of the time, it's not quite the same as seeing a pediatrician with a sick child. So I, I think there are things we need to think through for the future about how such things are managed. And we do need to learn from those things. But um, that could probably be the topic of another podcast, Dave. And I'm, I'm very grateful because uh, your time is very valuable and precious. So Thank you very much. I think that was incredibly interesting and I hope people have found it useful. But uh, thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts.